0: Welcome back. So listen, every Friday, we're going to start doing a little session where we're going to answer the top three questions that Julie and I have received in our emails. We receive literally hundreds of uh, questions um, every month, and those questions are normally easily answered by us or someone from our staff sending you guys a link to a podcast we did on your very questions. So first line of defense when you have a question for us about your real estate practice or anything in general is go to the search bar on timandjulieharris.com and just drop your question in um, or just go to the podcast section and do the same thing. And I bet you we've done more than one show on that very topic. Um, so, yeah, there's a the good idea. If those of you who listen off iTunes or Stitcher, you don't really have a searchable index like you do on our main website, timandjulieharris.com. So I strongly suggest that you go to timandjulieharris.com when you're trying to get your questions answered um, and uh, we also have another – I'm just thinking as I'm talking, we have another search uh, widget on the main website that also will pull up. It's on the bottom. It's like a chat thing. So if you put your question in there too, you'll get your questions answered as well. The question uh, – the, the system that we put in place was designed so that anybody in real estate could use it as a resource to getting questions answered. Um, so I, had, <coughs> Julie and I uh, called our top three questions that we continuously hear – Really, mostly from this past week, and I have to say, those of you who have been in the industry forever, you guys know that these are the typical questions agents start to ask towards the end of the year. So, the three questions that I'm going to be answering today are um, basically about switching a broker or choosing a broker. The second question is, should I join a team? And the cr- third question is, should I, should I build a team? Now. Um, The switching brokers question is something that always happens at the end of the year and really towards the beginning of the year. And I want to caution all of you, before you think about switching brokerages, I want you to ask what you think of yourself, ask yourself what you think a broker is really supposed to do for you. Because a lot of you guys have unrealistic expectations of what a broker is supposed to do. And brokers, a lot of you have set the bar so high for the services that you provide to your agents, you've spoiled them for so long, When the economy changes and cash flow changes and you have essentially uh, created this nest full of hungry, pissed off birds, they're going to want leads, they're going to want all these marketing services, they're going to want all these other ancillary services that if you you just have uh, grown accustomed to providing for them and they've uh, grown accustomed to seeing as an entitlement, you're going to have a problem. So my suggestion to brokers in particular is as we transition into the real estate reset in a noticeable way, I would strongly suggest you uh, break your or services provided into an a la carte type thing that the agents have to start paying for. um, And then maybe make that into a profit center or at the very least run the services as a, uh, you know, a a pass through expense. And that way you could still provide the services, but the agents then have to pay for them. And I'm only saying that And agents, I know you're pissed off when you hear me say that, but here's the reality of it. If your broker doesn't survive a real estate reset or it, You're kind of in hard water yourself, aren't you? That's kind of creating problems for you. So here are suggestions that I have for all of you. Number one, switching or choosing the highest broker, or switching or uh, or choosing a broker. So here are the questions I I go through if I were coaching you directly. Number one, what is your expectation for a broker? Your expectation should be a broker just provides a legal environment for you to conduct business, and that's the extent of it. Um, if you're entering into uh, a brokerage relationship and you're looking for a broker that's going to provide training, coaching, a broker that's going to provide leads, it's going to provide motivation, it's going to provide support, it's going to provide all this, um, you're not really maybe even ready to work for yourself as an independent contractor because those are things that as a small business owner, you need to work on creating yourself. Got it? Be very clear about that. So switching or choosing a broker The questions you should ask is number one: uh, Is the highest commission split truly the most important thing to you? A lot of agents in more expensive areas with higher commissions uh, have the least, or have the the commission splits that are usually 85, you know, 15 or 90, 10 or something like that. In other words, in the country, the highest-paid agents working for traditional brokerages usually have a commission split that the rest of the country would find unacceptable. But here's the thing. The higher-end brokerages, generally speaking, can afford to provide a high level of services to their customers, to their agents. Because remember, a broker's customers are the agents. So a broker can provide high levels of service to their agents when they have higher margins from selling higher sale prices. So when you're choosing a brokerage, Don't start with the assumption that it's whoever's going to give you the highest split because depending on your overall situation, your overall market, that actually might be the worst decision for you to make because you could walk into a stellar brokerage situation like Elite Pacific in Hawaii, and they offer such an amazing array of services to their agents that if I were in Hawaii, that's the brokerage I would seriously consider, no doubt, if I was selling real estate because they really take care of a lot of the things that – um, normally, agents are going to have to build, and they do it. At, and They're not charging a huge onerous amount of money to provide these services. It's a great overall deal. So you have to decide when you're entering into the brokerage, you know, thinking about switching or looking for a broker in the first place. Is the commission split the the most important thing? Because there are lots of companies out there that will pay you basically 100% or near 100%. But you need to decide what what that means. What are the ramifications of that? I've just given you guys some breadcrumbs you can think about. Number two, does the physical location of the brokerage matter to you? Does the physical location of the brokerage matter to you? Now, here's an interesting thought for you. Um, Brokerages traditionally have spent way too much money on facilities, way too much money on offices, way too much money on essentially creating a, you know, some sort of, Beautiful environment for agents to conduct business, and only to find that agents never go to the office. <laughs> so, I would suggest that all of you seriously consider a broker, not having the location of the actual brokerage be that big of a consideration because it doesn't really matter. Ultimately, and those of you who are not in the real estate business or are getting into the real estate business or real estate curious. Um, you might be surprised to know that your customers never even want to go to your office. They're never even going to want to go to your real estate brokerage. They want to meet you at the house or the Starbucks or, or whatever else. That's how modern real estate deals are done, and it doesn't matter. So don't overthink whether your brokerage's location is near you. Now, the next one is really going to raise some eyebrows, but it's really true. Remember, Julie and I sold real estate, so I'm speaking from experience, not theory. Your brokerage's brand may not matter as much as you think. And, again, here's how I want you to think about this. This is the test. When you go to a closing and you ask this, you know, whoever your client was, the seller or the buyer, hopefully both, you ask them what brokerage you're with, chances are they won't know. Think about that. And if you're in a state like California, where there's no prominence laws, in other words, like where Julie and I sold real estate in Ohio, when you saw our for sale sign, the REMAX logo, because we were REMAX agents, had to be the same size, if not greater than any logo or, or even our names. or It went down to the phone number. So a phone number of our uh, our phone number, which was um, you know, 614-846-0500, our phone number, our real estate phone number, had to be Uh, the same size or smaller than the broker's phone number. I mean, the laws were draconian, really, is what I'm saying. They were put in place way back in the, you know, (laughs) I don't even know when, the Stone Age, to obviously make it so that brokers always dominate agents on all pieces of marketing. And, yes, Julie and I got in trouble on a fairly regular basis because some competing agent or broker, probably broker, would say, oh, their marketing is more dominant than Remax, because Remax didn't really care. It was all the more traditional brokerages that cared. So the thought I have for you, when you're choosing a brokerage, don't get all hung up on the brand. Brand means something to agents; it doesn't really mean anything to consumers. Now, here are the exceptions to what I just said. If you're in a, a market that is controlled by maybe three or four dominant brands, like New York City, Manhattan, things like that, then brand matters. If you're dealing primarily with consumers that are older than probably 60 or 65, brand matters. Younger people do not give a crap about brand for the most part. They just don't care. They're going to do business with individuals, and at the end of the day, they're, when, you, when asked who they did business with, they're not going to say some brand name. They're going to say, you know, Tim and Julie Harris. That's what they're going to remember. They're going to say your name. At least they better say your name. Otherwise, you didn't do a good job of impressing upon them uh, your level of expertise. All right, next point under switching or choosing a broker, the level of support that they offer. That's another thing that you need to really individual practitioners because you guys are our lifeblood, right? We're, you know, we're agent centric here. Does the supposed support that the brokerage offers really matter to you? A brokerage, all brokerages are going to offer some level of oversight on your paperwork for the sake of legal, legal reasons, right? So that's going to be universally true no matter what situation you're in. They're going to want to make sure you had all your agency forms and your disclosures and all the just amazing amount of paperwork that's required in a real estate deal. There's automated systems, but there's also going to be some sort of manual override. They're going to make sure all that's okay. So let's assume that every brokerage offers that. Beyond that, every single service that you think you might need uh, from a real estate brokerage, you can usually – well, not even usually anymore. You can get yourself uh, online for low or no fees. Matter of fact, you can go. I, I'll take it as far as say you can staff your business. I'm gonna, we're gonna talk about Teams here in a second. You can staff a lot of the menial work, setting up showings, getting feedback, doing your marketing, doing um, you know just any of that sort of thing. You can do all of that through virtual assistants for no more than usually about fifteen to eighteen hundred dollars a month total, complete total expense. So you can literally have a full-time staff member that's working for you that provides a lot of the services. Now, do you need to be thinking about these things um, when you're just getting started? Of course not. Do you need to be thinking about these things, what I'm talking about now, um, as you're scaling? Yes, because you're gonna, that's when you start running uh, into problems with your net profit. And again, the next two questions are about teams, so I'll get to the more particulars on that in a second. All right, so um, what was the last thing I'm Do you want a broker provides lots of services for a fee or none? Okay, I just repeated myself. All right, so we're going to move on to the next question. Should I join a team? Oh, this is a question we get a lot. Now, everybody in real estate except Tim and Julie will tell you you should join a team. Here's, and Julie and I actually don't agree on this point. Julie will tell you that you should join a, consider joining a team that will provide you buyer leads and just work the buyer leads. Personally, I don't think you should join a team. Personally, I think that the longer you stay in some sort of getting ready to get started team environment, you're never going to actually learn how to be your own business, own your own business, learn the skills. You're always going to have that day in the future where you're going to break off on your own and be independent. And here's another little interesting fallacy, and again, this is going into question three, so I don't want to foreshadow it you know too much. but the reality of it is is that teams themselves were a long term trend that started in the '90s, and we're already starting to i mean Julie and I have been basically trying to enlighten the real estate agents out there as to why they probably don't want to form a large team. but with that said, do should you join a team now? Just delaying the inevitable. Learn to be a listing agent. You didn't get into real estate to be somebody else's assistant, as I wrote down. Next point, teams are not a place where you learn to grow your own business. It's not learning on the job. It's complying on the job. Point number three that I wrote down is working primarily with buyers is a skill that will lose value in the next downturn. Buyers get commission. Uh, buyers agents' commissions will go from an entitlement of the transaction to something agents should have to uh, will have to negotiate for. The buyer agents will be forced to sell. Uh, see to sell their buyers and why they're worth X. Okay, so that last point that I wrote down is a good one. And we're already seeing evidence of this. This is already being trotted out by some of these like open door type companies. You guys absolutely positively are going to see buyer agents have to negotiate for their commissions just like listing agents do. Buyer agents are going to have to explain to a buyer why they are worth whatever percent or dollar amount over what the buyer is willing to pay. When you guys go to an auction, let's say, when you go to a car auction – Um, When the seller sells, the seller uh, uh, typically pays the auction house Seven to ten percent. But did you know when you watch his auctions on TV, for example, did you know there's also a fee that the buyer has to pay? The buyer has to pay the same amount, seven to ten percent. So the auction house makes fourteen to twenty percent every time something's sold. There's a good business, right? And that's the way a lot of the auctions work around the world too, in Australia and whatnot, where people basically don't sell real estate like we do. They sell it through auctions. That's the same system that they have in place as well. So please listen. Don't guys, don't delay on trusting me that I know what I'm talking about with regards to this particular bit of information. A lot of you for the last forever have only been working with buyers, and the listings you took were just things you wandered into. Fact. And virtually all the business you got was either bought or it was centers of influence and in past clients. There's another fact. That is, those two sources are incredibly weak unreliable and here's the mindset for you when you wake up in the morning if your business is focused on centers of influence and past clients and buying leads you literally have no control over what's going on in your business now it gets worse if you work as part of somebody's team when you work as somebody's team and you're expected to be handed leads and mostly buyer leads or what most you know of you might consider working for someone's team for the sake of buyer leads you have less than no control on basically any aspect of your professional career. You're just working for somebody. And if you do the math on it, in most cases, you literally would be better off working someplace else. I always use Home Depot as an example, but it is a good example. They have great health insurance. So Home Depot, probably for most of you, if you're considering working in someone's team as a buyer's agent, would be a better alternative if your goal is to make money. Okay? How about that for a little harsh? but it's the truth it's the reality of it and the team environment themselves it is really not designed to do anything in terms of growing or you know, nurturing you or doing anything that's going to put you in a position where you're going to learn other aspects of the business. Most team environments, most people that have teams are being trained that the buyer agents are only supposed to be buyer agents. They're never allowed or never supposed to have any aspect of control of the client. They're not allowed to form long-term relationships with the centers, with the, even the clients that they form. They're just there to perform a service, like the guy flipping the burger. Do you want to be in an environment like that? Of course you don't. Did you get into real estate to basically be beholden to somebody else's ebbs and flows? Of course you didn't. So the reality of it is, is in my opinion, you should not join a team when you get into real estate. You should not join a team when you're experiencing hardships in your real estate business. You should not join a team when, unless – the, and I'll give you the parameters of it. Here's the, teams, here's the team, and I use that term loosely, that I would consider uh, or suggest that you join. In some cases, you're going to find – now, this is a unicorn-type agent, but an agent who has a, a listing-dominated business. Most of their uh, business, if not like 80 90% of it is on the list side, and they just don't want to work buyers anymore. That is a good situation for you. Okay? I like that environment. I like it when you're not com- you know, competing with an army of other buyer agents. Most buyer agents in the country – here's a fact. Part of teams sell a little more than one house a month. So they're going to sell around 12 houses per month if you're in, oh, let's say, not on one of the expensive coastal areas, and your average sale price is 230,000 dollars, and your average commission is, um, let's say, seven grand. and you're only as a team member going to get paid on average Guys, this is the real math. Are you paying attention? You're only going to get paid on average 50%, but a lot of teams only pay 30%. But let's say it's 50%. So let's every time you get a commission check, let's say you're only making $3,500. And on average, you're only going to sell one house per month. On average, you're only going to make about 40 grand per year. Is that the reason you got into real estate? These are real numbers, guys, that you need to be considering. This is the reason, I'll say it, for the umpteenth time that you should not join a team unless you have some sort of ridiculously good, advantageous situation. And I've had coaching clients, frankly... Um, who've walked into deals like that, where basically they walked into somebody's practice who was very successful as a listing agent, and they've just done incredibly well. And, uh, you know, basically they eventually took over that other agent's business and as that agent wanted to fade a little bit out of the industry. And, hey, guess what? I respect that. That makes sense. But that's not the situation that most of you are considering. All right, now, point number three. This is another controversial topic, but, you know, it's so funny. When Julie and I first started saying this like seven years ago, this was at the height of the, you know, I don't even know, height of the hype, I'd say, as far as team building. And team building, guys, for those of you who have not been in the industry forever, building teams and the whole team thing has been around since. I mean, it's been around probably longer than Julie and I were in the business, but I'll say it's been around since around 1990. That's when teams started to get forms. Julie and I had the first real estate team in our marketplace. And this, so when I tell you what I'm telling you, I'm speaking from experience, uh, we were very, we were Julia or we Howard Britton stars. We were very, you know, close to a lot of the biggest teams that got formed. Matter of fact, a lot of you guys use um, Gary Keller's that Red Book, whatever it's called, Millionaire Agent or whatever it is. You guys use that as a Bible, book turn to page four, I think, and a lot of those people that are in there that gave Gary the uh, outlines and notes and ideas for the, the uh, business plan that he prescribed inside the Red Book were Howard Britton agents that Julie and I personally knew. So when I tell you we know how the team situation is supposed to work and how it actually has evolved to work, trust that I know what I'm talking about. So here's the thing, Gary said it right in his book, and Julie, you know, we're not Keller Williams agents, I just, the man deserves the credit, right? He pulled out the facts and did the actual homework, and the amount of money you're supposed to be spending on marketing and buying leads and all the rest of it is 10%, but that's not at all what's happened. So the the exact business model was originally uh, formulated based on the idea that the people running the business were going to uh, have a profit margin of 30 to 40 percent. But that's not what what has happened at all. So here's some simple facts for you, um, and the, these are some just some points I wrote down. Uh, okay, so first of all, should I build a team? Now, you, In Harris Rules, our book, it's on Amazon, international number one bestseller. 75,000 copies or whatever in some form or another have sold. So should you uh, form a team, and when should you hire uh, assistants? Call them what you want to call them. I don't care, team members, assistants, admins. I don't care what you call them, but they're assistants, right? So when should you add them? In the book, there's a formula for when you should add them. The general rule is, and this depends on your uh, sale price, is that you should add an assistant after you successfully closed five transactions for three months in a row. Once you've proven your ability to basically work consistently, most importantly, generate leads consistently, generate listings consistently, then you can afford the consistent financial demands of a full-time assistant. And the first person you should hire should be a transaction coordinator. And then after that, the next person you want to hire is going to be somebody who's going to manage your listings, because at that point, hopefully, you're just basically drilled down consistently taking listings. The next person you're going to want to hire, and a lot of times you can delegate all this stuff to third-party providers. Uh, is you're going to want to consider hiring someone to basically start doing all the running around. Because as your listing inventory increases, you're going to have a lot of demands from sellers asking for this the other thing, and you're going to have somebody do that. Now, you could also have that same person take pictures and things like that. As far as making home brochures, you don't need to do that internally. There are so many places online that will do that once you email them the pictures, and they do a glorious job. Um, all these you know ancillary services that you guys need, for, um, you know, doing the marketing and taking care of your sellers. Trust me when I tell you, it's easily found online. So many companies that do a great job for usually a lot less than you might expect. You could have a really incredible home brochure made for a seller in like a hundred copies printed for like a hundred bucks. I mean, the whole thing done for virtually nothing. Go online and look. Don't email me asking me for links. Do your own homework. Ask other agents. When you see an agent with a great home brochure, and I know they're not very, you don't see that very often, ask them where they had it made, ask questions like that, okay, so that makes sense, so when you're scaling or building your real estate practice, the ideal ideal team is no more than four or five team members max, now, do not build a team or have a mindset of building a team based on buyer agent transactions, do not build, do not do what all these other agents have been doing for the last really since 2011, just for the sake of having production numbers, just for the sake of being able to brag about how many houses they sold, don't build a business that's based on just production. Don't, it, it is not true that profit will follow production. That does not work that way. Because if you're not building a business where profit is on the number one line item, you're not going to make any profit. So when you're building your business, if you're building it based on listings, you will make usually 80 to even 90% margins. A team, listen to what I'm telling you guys. This is all in our book, but listen what I'm telling you. Most teams, and this is not, this is our research, but this is a lot of other people have researched the same topic at this point, so let's just assume this is true. Most teams make less than 10% margin. Most uh, teams run the way Julie and I suggest, which are based on listings, having ideally three to four, maybe five people on staff, including you. They're going to make 90% margins. That means a team who is focused on listings, can make literally the owner, the guy or gal putting it together, can literally make you know <laughs> millions of dollars even though they're not the one winning all the awards and getting all the recognition because the way the system works, it's designed to you know, motivate agents' egos to do things that are not financially prudent but get the numbers up. Does this make sense, guys? Are you following me on this? Don't you all intuitively know that what I'm saying to you is true? I know you do. That's the reason that yesterday, uh, before 5 o'clock, 20,000 people listened to the show. All right, number one, uh, the most successful teams are listings based. You probably don't even know what teams I'm talking about when I say that. Usually they're just agents with assistance. I was interviewing, um, oh, I don't remember her name now. I'll remember it since I stopped trying to remember it. <laughs> She's one of the top agents in L.A. She's um, Some of you are saying it out loud like as if I could hear you. And just, she just is a brilliant gal. She was like a Caldwell banker or I forget which. Just a wonderful, wonderful agent. And when I asked her if she had a team on the interview, it was kind of funny. She paused because she knows it's so politically incorrect in real estate, not to say you have a damn team. And she goes, no, I don't have a team, but I have three staff members. I said, amen, sister, because that's the only way to run a business. And her margins are hilarious, how much money she was making from every deal. And that's the same way you guys got to do it. You know, it's interesting to me that so many of you rationalize, you big you know, mega agent types, rationalize having these teams where you make no money on them. Uh, because you think somehow that's going to pay your overhead on the other side of your business. What you're not taking into consideration, even if that's true, even if your buyer-side transactions, all they do is basically pay for your marketing and your assistance and all, everything else, covers the cost of the business, even though you don't make any profit. What you're not taking into consideration is the amount of time of your life energy you're using uh, of, to basically service those buyer's agents the amount of time you're wasting that you could otherwise be put towards taking a listing i don't look let's say you are one of these big mega agents and let's say this month your buyer's agents closed 15 deals woo good month right whatever your number is and let's say that basically just like i said you're the cash flow Looks great, but when you look at the net profit from those buyer-side transactions, it's probably like $300 each. So off all those transactions, the actual profit you pulled out of those deals, if it is even profit, let's be honest, I want you to think about how many listings in your marketplace you would have had to take to have made that amount of money. One, maybe two. And yet, look, add up all the hours that you spent hiring, training, firing, holding accountable, all the systems you put in place, all the Mickey Mouse money and time you've wasted trying to build that team where you could have made more net profit if you just taken two or three uh, additional listings. Have you ever thought about that? So why are you doing the other thing? Why are you doing the team thing? You have to be honest with yourself. It's you are really concerned. You are really wanting to look like a big shot. It's your ego. It's not because you're making any profit. I'm sorry if that offends you. Be offended and then be introspective. Are you significantly financially better off at the end of every year running your team model? I already know the answer, and so do you. So before the economy turns for the worse, I want you to seriously consider right-sizing your team and start running a smart, profitable team opposed to an ego team that's just based purely on numbers just for the sake of you know basically being able to brag and getting all the plaques. Hey, guys, take those plaques next door to the bank and see if they'll cash those for you. See if you can pay your bills off those plaques. You can't. All right, so there's no such thing as uh, building a team that runs without you. You're merely, merely replacing the highly paid role of doing listings with the job of running adult daycare. That's a point I wrote down. Next point, teams have no market value. There's no liquidity event on your horizon. That's another reason that you guys justify sometimes not making any profit. You'll say, I'm not going to make any profit because years and years from now, some unicorn's going to fly over, and he's going, do unicorns fly? Yeah, do they? I don't remember. Hop to ask Zoe. Let's assume they do. (laughs) Some unicorn's going to fly over, uh, fart rainbows, and out will come uh, pots of gold. Okay, that does not happen. There are no liquidity events on your horizon for running a team. The way you get rich selling real you don't get rich selling real estate. We talked about this in our book. We've talked about this in the podcast before. Um, you don't get rich selling real estate. You get rich from the profit you reinvest from having sold real estate. And If you don't have profit from selling real estate, you will have no money to reinvest and you'll never be rich. The definition of rich, and I give this to all of you, is where your money works for you and you no longer have to work for your money. These are some interesting thoughts that all of you need to be considering. All right, any other points on this point? Nope, that's about it. So, look, guys, those are the top three questions that we had in the past week. And I know why most of these questions are coming up because you all are looking at the end of the year and you're realizing that, you know, the markets changed, the market conditions have changed. You're realizing a lot of things are feeling different in your marketplaces. And every single year, agents always do the same thing. They always go and start questioning whether they should be switching brokerages. They'll say like, I'm going to work on my team, I'm going to look, do not do any of those things. For at least the next 90 days, you need to be focusing on production. You need to be focusing on going after listings. We did, what, three shows this week about essentially how your fourth quarter has already started and why and what you should be doing and gave you an exact plan. Would you please use it? Don't allow yourself to be manipulated into thinking you need to be talking about teams or buying leads or Facebook or Snapchat ads or your logo or your website. Stay in production mode, guys. Stay on the hunt. Stay in front lines. Look at all the expireds that are – oh, there's no expireds in my marketplace. Yes, there are. Expireds, withdrawns. Go to the MLS. Expand your area to your entire MLS look to see what the numbers are month over month go back and just see what the numbers were this time last year and you'll see a substantial increase in expires year over year. every source of business that we teach you in premier coaching um, I mean are, is either completely the sources the leads are free or virtually free. you have to do a little bit of work right I want you to take this time of year to not take a breath but to recommit for the rest of the year because the momentum you create now is going to be what creates momentum for you in first quarter. If you don't create momentum now, and you roll into next year, like most of you unfortunately will, despite the fact that Julie and I have been telling you this constantly every single show for the past 7 to 10 shows, if you roll into next year and you don't have at least probably for most of you 5 to 10 listings, if you don't have some closings, and you think you're going to be able to successfully, just somehow magically build momentum immediately in January and February you're wrong every year agents make that mistake and that's why most agents don't start seeing transactions until late spring early summer because they weren't doing what they were supposed to do the previous quarter of the previous year hmm sound familiar for those of you who've been in the business that's the reason you guys have, have huge ebbs and flows in your income by huge i mean maybe one month you have three closings and the next month and the next month you have none It's because you have bought into the belief that you're supposed to be coasting in fourth quarter of the previous year. Do not. You've bought into the belief that you're supposed to be spending your limited time and energy, and all of us have limited time and energy, on non-dollar productive things. Remember, guys, the highest and best use of your efforts and energy every single day are focusing on being of service to others. You're supposed to lead generate. You're supposed to pre-qualify. You're supposed to present. You're supposed to negotiate, and you're supposed to close. Focus everything you've got on being a killer listing agent. If there's one project that I can assign to all of you for the rest of the year, it's absolutely take at least and have at least a minimum of 10 listings at all times when the calendar switches. I know it's four months from now, but again, there's probably realistically only 61 working days left this year. So I'm trying to be – Treat you guys like business people, help you realize that you don't have forever to get your goals accomplished, and helping you realize that your year is already started, 2019 is already started. If you're listening to this in the future, the information still applies. So guys, look, don't wait, don't procrastinate, don't get ready to get started, just take action. If there's anything we can do for you, it's a free coaching calls for agents.com or Tim at TimAndJulieHarris.com. Have a fantastic day. We'll talk to you on the show tomorrow. This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris, Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows.